0: Hello, and a welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist, and on today's episode, we are here with Lucy Witt, a documentary filmmaker. Her film is called Dragon's Lair. Before we start talking to Lucy, I want to spend a moment talking to the audience. This is going to be a difficult topic for many of you, but part of what we do here on Emotional Badass, as emotional badasses in our lives, is that we look at these really difficult topics that are affecting us in society and as individuals. Um, So this documentary is about Lucy's experience in sexual abuse and pedophilia. Now, I am an advocate for survivors and victims. And in a lot of ways, it's it's an easy advocacy. I get a lot of support for advocating for those that have been wounded by pedophiles. Lucy's coming from a different advocacy perspective, but one that I am very much getting behind. Um, So you'll hear that in the show, and I am available on our Patreon for any questions that may come up for you from this episode. This may be a triggering episode, depending on where you are on your healing path. We are infinitely different and amazingly similar in terms of abuse recovery. If we run from our triggers. Our triggers will run us. So if this topic is triggering for you, trust your gut, do what you need to do based on your journey. If you need to turn it off right now and come back to it later, listen to that, do that. If you need to bring it and sit with your therapist and listen to it with your therapist to learn how to ground, how to process, how to release some of your old pain and shame and confusion, do that with your support team. If the show makes you want to connect with me for one session or ongoing work, know that that is available to you also. But if we run from our triggers, it's true that our triggers ultimately run us. So find the ways that you can lean into your growth edge to expand and to transform. That is how we heal. Thank you for tuning in to this powerful show and for giving us grace as we discuss very difficult topics. So let's go ahead and get started. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Nikki. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you so much for being open to being on the show. I came across your documentary on YouTube, and I originally thought it was a mistake that it was on YouTube. And then in connecting with you, I found out that you put it on YouTube intentionally to make it free information. So I, I love that. I love that that's a gift to the world and really speaks to what? what's in your heart about healing these issues so tell me a little bit about why you decided to make a documentary well um the journey of actually making the documentary
2: came about because as is obvious in the subject matter i was a um, subject of childhood pedophilia myself and childhood sexual sexual abuse um And through that journey of discovery as a teenager and then later into adulthood, I realized that there wasn't a lot of information out there at the time that was speaking to me and speaking to my experience as it was. Um, I found a lot of information that spoke into a sort of um, rhetoric of how it should be and how there is an expectation of what it should be. But that really didn't tick the boxes for me in terms of um, explain you know actually um answering how I was feeling towards it, and what my you know speaking about the relationship that I had with um my um abuser and my abuser actually was my stepfather so um I felt the need to put my thoughts on paper, and then subsequently in film. Um, and the second reason for making the film was because um, I had actually believed for many number of years, um, 20 years to be precise, that my abuse was dead. Um, because that is what i had been led to believe. Um, Through complete chance, I discovered that he was very far from dead. In fact, he'd been continuing on his line of abuse um, and had been taken to court for um, the alleged abuse of four minors in Namibia. I say alleged because the case is still ongoing, although um, I think it's very clear Um, and I felt the need to support those girls who had been able to go forward with their um, court case and give them some form of evidence so it was important to me to get him on camera speaking to me openly um, and speaking to me about the grooming process because only through talking about the grooming process would I be able to um, hopefully be able to show the magistrate in his current case there were similarities in the case that I experienced um, to the cases that he is currently being, um, you know, um, in court for at the moment.
0: When I rewatched the film for this interview, I caught that in the beginning. And the first time I watched the documentary, I didn't catch that. I didn't catch that you had thought that he was dead many years and then found out that he wasn't and still perpetrating.
2: You know, finding out that he is, um, still perpetrating was probably the hard, one of the hardest things for me to actually come to terms with and to stomach. And the reason for that was because, you know, I believe that he got away with it with us. Um, by us, I mean, of course, myself and my sister. Um, and he was let off lightly, um, because he wasn't pr- prosecuted. Um, which, you know, has its reasons of its own, which I'll go and, which I'll explain to you later. But, it really, from a very naive standpoint and from a very naive point of view, it, it hit me hard that he had, even though he had been given this um life get out of jail free card, um, he had actually had the nerve to go ahead and um you know allegedly do the same to, for more girls, Um, all four of the girls at the time of their um allegations were under the age of ten um and I just felt that they were they needed an extra voice and it also would help in order to give a longevity of his um you know, his perpetration and and his behavior, um, because it would stand to reason that if, you know, he um, lost contact with me in 1986 um, and in 19... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, in 2014, was being accused again that there would have been many, many, many other victims in between those years. Um, and so I felt that, you know, even if the judge was going to try and look at the current cases that he had in isolation um as an old man, Um, you know, sort of becoming a bit of a kiddie-fiddler for wanting to not be too diminishing, but unfortunately our court systems do diminish these crimes, Um, hopefully with some sort of filmed evidence of cases that happened as far back as 1986 would give reason for her to believe that actually this was very much an ongoing and very much a long-term perpetual behavior. I
0: want to say that that's probably the norm. Like I identify very similarly with that dynamic, having been abused by my stepfather who then adopted me and finding out that he didn't start with me. He started with the younger children. So one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you when I saw the film was because I think the grooming aspects of how pervasive and how intimate and delicate the grooming is, is done not just to the victims, but to the people that are around them to enable the abuse for years and years and years from being a therapist and seeing sexual abuse survivors over the years, that many abusers have what Dragon shows in your film, this very non-frightening, um, very charismatic, very safe feeling energy, um, even while they can be a little creepy Well, I'm very pleased that you say that, Nikki, because
2: all research that has been done um, to date, or at least documented to date, does prove that um, pedophilia is not something that you get over. It is not a once-off thing. You know, it's not... It's, um, you know, more along the lines of the analogy that Dragon himself uses of a lion going for a, a girl at a waterhole. You know, once you've had that, um, experience, the chances of going back and re-performing that experience over and over and over, um, are absolutely profound. I mean, we know this to be the case. This is all research that is, um, you know, points in that very direction. It's not something that is just, um, you know, you, you can recover from. Um, which is why I think I advocate in the way I do um, and have the standpoint I do of trying to reach the pedophile before they actually go ahead and perpetrate. Um, Because with that perpetration, the perpetration does not start and the the crime does not begin um, with the day that the pedophile starts having sexual activity with the child. As you said, quite rightly, there is a very long and very Delicate grooming process that, per- that takes place long before there is any form of sexual activity. Um, and that grooming process is a normalization of the situation. Now, in my documentary, I talk about that normalization, which unfortunately is being interpreted, um, you know, by a lot of viewers as being, you know, that I'm talking about normalizing pedophilia. But actually, the context that I talk about in terms of normalization is that what they do is part of that grooming is to, to, Persuade the family or, you know, the caregivers of that child um, that certain behaviors are normal. So, and by normal, I, I put the word normal in inverted commas. Um, it's becoming comfortable with identity, it's becoming comfortable with touch, um, it's also developing a relationship with the child and as well as the caregivers, um, and sometimes even close friends, whereby they trust this person and they trust that. The, this person's intentions are, um, clear as to what they perceive those intentions to be. Um, and the last thing that you would, the last thing that you would put, um, you know, in the doorstep of a pedophile is actually that they could possibly be doing harm to the child because the relation, the interpretation of the relationship when it is actually happening with the child, um, you know, and obviously I'm specifically talking about long-term familial, um, failure here. Um, and long-term grooming. I'm not talking about the instances where, you know, it's the uncle who puts the child onto the lap in a one-off situation. I'm not referring to those um, individual experiences. I'm talking about the long-term grooming processes. It 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 takes a matter of years for the parents or the caregivers to get to a point with that paedophile to believe that that paedophile is. A very close to the child in terms of has the child's best interests at heart. Um, they could be, for example, a um, sporting coach or a teacher or somebody close, to, you know, in the child's life that they they do what they do in order to benefit the child. So the sexuality and sexual behaviour is never brought into it. That point, um, you know, in my instance, and I can only speak from my own experience because you know i'm not a professional um and i literally do only come from my personal experience my experience um it took 4 years before dragon um had any form of penile penetration or any of that kind of um you know level of sexuality and um, it became with, with it started off with nudity, it then moved from nudity to self-exploration. So he would encourage me um, using, for example, the aid of the bath, um, how to wash myself or how to take care of myself physically. Um, you know, and of course, the pedophile actually ha- has a reaction from that kind of behavior as well, because it doesn't matter what the age is of the child, whether it's a boy or a girl, um, the sexual organs respond um, in the very same way in a, from a baby to a child to a teenager to an adult. Um, so therefore, you know, the, the gratification that the pedophile is obtaining from observing that child um, self-stimulating um, is as great as if the pedophile is stimulating him or herself. Um, and in my case, you know, from then obviously it moved on to um, him um, interacting and touching me, um, and you know, physically, and, and from there it then progressed up to more sexual um, connotations. But by the time it had progressed onto con- the sexuality and the sexual connotation, it we'd be, we'd walked a long process of what I refer to as normalisation, so that by the time that happened, it wasn't a shock in any form for me to warrant me going to tell anybody or to about it to anybody because it was what was so-called normal in my household um because we were encouraged um as children you know because it was hot we lived in a desert town run around in your in your underwear and you don't need to you know cover up you cover your, your private parts because of that we my mother was also used to the fact that we would run around in our panties for example um and it didn't seem strange to her at the time, also, if anything ever came up that you know made her feel uncomfortable on any level, and also you've got to contextualize the time um it, it, there, there was nothing he would diminish her anxieties, he would dispel her fears in the very same way that very often if somebody is having an affair or something along those lines, how they will um diminish the person's um natural uh, instincts, that there is something wrong with the behavior. Um, you know, by making that person who has those instincts to feel that they're the ones with a problem and they're the ones who have something wrong with what their perception is. You know, how could you possibly think something so awful? Um, so ultimately, what happens is the, the caregivers start to doubt their own perceptions. Um, and that is why will so often turn around and say, well, I didn't know, Um, because whilst they may or may not at some point have had some sort of instinctive little, you know, sort of feeling in the back of their heads, um, the pedophile will groom them to such an extent to believe that their instincts are incorrect um, and that they're being paranoid or whatever. So I mentioned a moment ago about the time, you know, in in my instance, and I do not believe that it makes any difference to the prevalence of pedophilia today because, um, you know, we know that um, because of the fact that people are more open and talk about these things a little bit more openly than what they did 30 and 40 years ago, um, we know that it is as prevalent as it is Today, the only difference that changed are the mediums and the accessibility because of the onset of Internet. But in my instance, one you need to remember that we were living in a little village, a tiny little village in the middle of the desert in a country called Southwest Africa at the time, now called Namibia. Um, you know, we were nearly two or three hours away from the nearest town. Um, there was no internet in those days. We had party line telephones. Um, you know, if you wanted information, you would go to the library and you'd write an encyclopedia. Um, you know, further to that, my mother came from a background, an English background, um, which was a very closed, um, home where they did not discuss sex or sexuality or any form of sexual activity for that matter. Um, and her first sexual experience or fe- sexual exposure was um, when she was married to my biological father. So, you know, the the idea and the concept of pedophilia was so um, um, distant from her. Further to that, um, you know, my mother um, went to closed order of nuns um, school and, and therefore the last place you're going to talk Um, at school about, you know, if if you're going to a convent, you're not going to be talking about it at school and sexuality. And pedophilia certainly would not be a discussion that would be on the table, you know, or something that you would just actively openly talk about.
0: Yes. And I think that's part of the pervasive problem of it. And, you know, that, that visual you gave earlier of, you know, the 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 tiger or the lion going into the lair. I think what that sets us up for, because I believe that that's sort of our collective unconscious belief of stranger danger and where is this dangerous predator? And I do think they turn into that lion once they have the child in their grips. But often when we're looking, they look like bunnies.
2: You know, it's very important to remember that research has shown that the statistic is 90% of pedophilia occurs within familiarity and context. So with people who you are familiar with... Um, and the reason for that is quite simply because for an adult to engage with any form of sexual activity with a child, that, per- that person has to be somebody that that child trusts. If a stranger were to approach a child um, and expose themselves to that child or try to engage in some sort of um, inappropriate behavior, and particularly in today's world, the child is going to say something. The child is m- certainly not going to... That is secret, um, and the child is going to play up. When you are hoping to have some sort of ongoing, um, perpetual relationship with a child of of any sort, um, it is important to get down onto that child's level, Um, and even more so when you're talking about a paedophile who is preying on a child. Um, For that child to maintain secrecy of that. Um, relationship, the pedophile needs to ensure that he or she has created an environment of trust. Um, And an environment of trust is something that happens with somebody who you know. It is not something that happens with a stranger.
1: Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm. of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com.
0: Absolutely. I'm you're reminding me of a line from my victim statement that I read um, at my abuser's sentencing. And one of the things I name is that he was the safest, kindest, most interested person in my world. And that is the space that pedophilia that pedophiles work into very, very intentionally. Well, absolutely. And in fact, it
2: is very much along those lines and due to that very fact that I refer to a, a, a phenomenon, what I refer to as the pause moment in my film. And what I mean by that pause moment is not, um, you know, a nice happy story at the end of the line where the secret comes out and the pedophile sits down with the child and they all have a, a, a lovely goodbye. That's not what I'm referring to at all. What I'm referring to is a situation or an, an encounter where, keeping in mind, just take the power uh, out of the picture for a moment, um, and consider a divorce. You know, if you have a marriage, um, you know, or a partnership between a husband and wife, or you know, a couple of, of some description, um, and there is a child involved in that relationship, before there is any form of divorce, there will be a some form of counselling. Um and the purpose of that counselling is very often in order to ensure a smooth transition and a smooth exit for the child to minimize the damage of that exit. Now my question is and my what I'm suggesting in my film by a pause moment is something very along those lines, um whereby the adults in that situation just take one moment to just put their own immediate reflexes, reactions aside, and consider that that pedophile, especially as was in the case of my instance where you know, it started when I was two years old and it ended when I was 12, by the age of 12 was the most important person in my life. Why? Because he had created it so and he yes. had created that, that relationship. So a moment needs to just be taken to consider the child's perspective, um, to give the child the opportunity to ask the questions to address the issues to she doesn 't need to ask the pedophile necessarily the questions, but she certainly needs to have the opportunity to ask those questions, and sometimes the only person who knows the answers to those questions is the only other person who is involved in those environments and those those experiences, which is the pedophile so Obviously, the child and the, you know, that pause moment needs to be a moment which is um, segued by a, some, you know, a counselor or a professional because none of us have the skills. No person that has not been to university and studied these matters have the skills to be able to do a separation of that kind on their own. You need counseling and you need assistance. Okay, but the, but to yank that child away without any explanation just by going, oh, that was bad. What you're ultimately doing is you're taking a situation that that's the only situation that that child knows. And that is a, a, a situation that even that that child has overcome any feelings of distrust that they might have had or any no feelings or any bad feelings and they have the, the the perpetrator has turned those feelings around to normalize and make it so that that child is used to, for want of a better um, term, reality. So that is that child's reality. And suddenly for an adult to turn around and say everything about your reality is bad and wrong without some sort of opportunity or some sort of pause moment where you can actually process that, In my opinion, and certainly in my experience, created an extra layer of damage. It took me many, many years to overcome. You know, the damage of the pedophile has already been done. That pedophile is not going to, in that moment, grab the child. I mean, it's it's just not, it's just not feasible. But we as adults are instinctively programmed to react and behave in a certain way. And I think it's really important to somehow, from an empathetic point of view, just try for a moment to consider the perspective of the child and the perspective
0: of that child's reality in the
2: very same way that you would if you were dealing with a divorce.
0: Well, you're naming the layers of trauma that happen that are above and beyond the sexual abuse. I believe you're naming an attachment wound. Like the additional trauma of the attachment being ripped away and for that type of abuse that I want to be really clear with our listeners so that no one mishears or misunderstands that what Lucy and I are talking about is is the the variance the spectrum of abuse sometimes even with child childhood abuse with people that they know sometimes it's violent and dark and scary. From being in the field and working with sexual abuse survivors for, I believe this is my 13th or 14th, maybe, gosh, maybe even 15th year of doing this type of healing work, what I've known to be true, come to know, is that most of the abuse is this sort of softer, kinder abuse of intimacy, That allows for the sexual abuse. And I believe that because we have this collective unconscious belief that sexual abuse, when when we think of that, we think of violent rape. And I believe when we get into the systems of pressing charges or of the secrets being released, what happens is there's this knee jerk reaction of handling it as if it is a violent rape instead of understanding the attachment that has been necessary to allow this type of abuse and helping that child through those moments without tacking on another attachment wound.
2: Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's also about the labeling of that um, process. You know, um, nobody is suggesting for an instant, well, I certainly am not suggesting that it's not bad and that and that it's not absolutely abhorrent behavior and that it should be done away with immediately under all circumstances. I mean, obviously that's the case. And yes. I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be doing, you know, what I'm doing if I didn't believe that. But what I also believe is that we we make things worse by the way in which we label them. So if you say to a child that everything that they have believed in their life to be good is suddenly bad, it really nullifies their existence, yes.
1: um,
2: you know, and that process of teaching that child what the, that behavior and that um, experience that they experienced was bad needs to be a process, um, and that process should not happen in that instance of separation. I'm not suggesting that there should be an ongoing relationship with a child and the pedophile. Uh, or, and if there is, it should certainly be a facilitated um, process, obviously. Um, but in the very same way that you wouldn't turn around and say, your parents are no longer going to live together because they don't get on together, um, and therefore, and everything that your other parents has ever said or done is bad, um, and therefore you can never speak to or see them again. We don't behave like that in other instances. Um, and in this instance, it, it's very similar from the perspective of the child. Again, it's important to keep in mind that when I'm what I'm referring to specifically is long-term familial pedophilia. I'm talking about People very close to the child, and this is something that's happened over a period of time. It's been a gradual process and has happened over years and years. This is not the once-off um, case. Um, and, you know, obviously there is an assessment process of exactly what happened. I mean, in my situation and in my case, I was not the one who revealed the secret. So the secret came out, and there was this complete chaos and hullabaloo in the house, I didn't understand what was going on. The only time, you know, obviously my mum was reacting to the loss of her relationship and the shock of what had been going on. Um, in that time, there was no professional who was finding out what actually did happen. I mean, it was only when I when I started unpacking it for the film that my mum realised for the very first time that it was something that had been going on for years and years and years perpetually. Um, Her understanding all of these years was something that had happened sort of once or twice. Um, You know, she certainly had no concept and had to be guided through the understanding that this was something that happened continuously, Mm-hmm. for a number of years, and that's the instance that I'm referring to. I'm not, you know, I think one would obviously handle it very differently in the instance where it's a once twice off instance, um, you know, um, where these things actually occur. And even in those instances of once or twice off, you can be rest assured that there has been a grooming process, um, you know, because otherwise it's... it's it's a very, very different, that's a very different subject. Um, You know, so I'm talking specifically about those long-term perpetual scenarios and in in those scenarios and in those cases, I do think that it would be very beneficial for everybody when the secret comes out to just stop for a moment, do nothing for a moment. Talking about weeks and days and, you know, I'm talking about just for a moment, get professional help. Be guided through the process. Don't take on that child and ask pointed questions yourself because the questions and the way in which those questions are pointed create a perception that that child carries with them In my instance, it was guilt. I then went on and became um, you know, completely sexually deviant for a, for a very long time, you know, and, and self-deprecating and by sexually deviant, I mean, I would have as many, whoever was willing to have me, um, you know, promiscuity, drugs, alcohol, anything that, you know, I felt guilty. I felt that I was not worthy of anything else. And not only that, but I had, my sexuality had been awakened at a very early age in my life. Um. And it was very hard for me to con- to comprehend and to understand that that was inappropriate um, because there was no professional guidance through that process.
0: Well, and that's one of the things that is lost, like what you're naming is such a typical story of going out there, trying to get a sense of control, not feeling worthy, involving in self-harming behaviors, um, not being very safe with the self. Um, it's all very typical consequences of living that way. Now, part of what's fascinating about your documentary, Dragon's Layer, is that you give us some insight and some footage unlike anything that I have seen before. You get... Him to admit his strategies. And we get to see inside his twisted mind how he processed doing what he has done and his relationship with you. The therapist in your film, I thought it it was brilliant and spot on that she named that the grooming isn't just about the support system and the child. As they are grooming, they are also. Manipulating themselves into these twisted storylines that somehow uh, give them permission to perpetrate. Well, there were, there are two things.
2: Um, the first is you know again from the feedback that I get from my film is you know I'm obviously haven't dealt with my issues you know and I've obviously not sort of processed any of this because I can just sit there and you know under his spell. Well you know, you've got to remember that for me to be able to get him to admit to those things as openly as I needed him to admit to them and to speak as openly as I did, I had to give him some sense of, you know, a feeling of safety. If he did not feel safe talking to me about those things, I would not have been able to get him to tell me the story. And I needed him to tell me the story because I needed it to be able to be used in court. Now... The very first thing that I did when I met him in the desert, or you know, obviously there was a process before. Literally, you know, within 24 hours of asking him to do the film, and then meeting up with him and actually driving out. But I had I had to take him through the process, the legalities, as a disclaimer, um, and you know, who owns the footage and that I can use the footage and what I'm going to do with it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I then had to talk to him and lure him into a sense of that he's in control, um, in, which took a... I mean, I, I interviewed him twice for four hours each, you know, um, and then obviously cut that all down into a 43-minute movie. But I had to lure him into a false sense of security to be able to, for him to divulge that information to me. Um, but what is really, really important is, is that at no point during any of those interviews did he ever take responsibility for his actions. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because they pedophiles, and, and I do generalize when I say this, because, again, you know, Dragon is not the only pedophile who I've had exposure to or spoken to. Um, you know, I researched the subject for three years before I actually made the film. Um, and pedophiles gen- generally, or at least every single one that I had access to, are not able to take responsibility for their behavior. And what they do is the the it's quite common or at least, you know, what I experienced was quite common is that they they interpret the child's um behavior as consent, mm-hmm. as willful consent. Um but what in actual fact it's they, they completely disregard the grooming that is tried before that sexual behavior, and the guidance that they have taken that child and led that child down that path to get to that point where they they come across and can be perceived as being consensual. That does not mean that the child is consensual. A two-, three-year-old child is not consenting sex because a two-, three-year-old child does not naturally and instinctively know what sex is at that point. However, a two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old child does want to please and they do want to do what's right and they do want to be in the good books and they don't want to be in trouble and they don't want to do wrong. So they will do what is asked of them if they've been guided down that path to be explained what is expected of them. And then when they do respond to what is expected of them, then that is in turn
0: interpreted and twisted to be consent from the perspective of the pedophile. And that is where so much of the shame lies. I cringe when I think about how many people have succumbed to suicide and overdoses trying to deal with the pain of their shame. And I'm hoping through our show today that anyone listening who is resonating with what we're talking about can really really take this in and understand that that is you can release a lot of your shame because we were we we were groomed to be good girls and wanted to be and we're good girls naturally. Yeah. And that is that is the real real twist of this abuse. Yeah. So,
2: you know, obviously this is as much of a girl and the boy issue, you know, as it is a man and a woman issue. I mean, this is not a man on girl situation. This is something that happens across the board. Yes. It is women um, abusing girls. It's women abusing boys. It's men abusing boys and men abusing girls. And it happens. Across the board, the only difference is, is that girls have more of an inclination to talk about their their, their, their um, experiences than boys do, and that is why at the moment um, because you can only base your statistics on reported cases, um, girls are more inclined to a b question about these things um, for these for this, um, these instances to actually be revealed. Um, people forget about the the prevalence of um, pedophilia with boys. Um, You know, pedophilia with boys is just as profound and just as damaging, um, as well as pedophilia perpetrated by women. Um, You know, this is not a man problem. This is a... World problem. This is a human problem, um, which then brings to my, the point, which for which most people find extremely controversial, which is, um, you know, my why I choose to work um, and do a lot of work um, working in the field of for the perpetrator, and the reason for this is not because I I work, with, you know, I want to work with perpetrators or people who have perpetrated, but I honestly do believe that we need to be working to, in, in, with preventative measures rather than working with, um, you know, once it has happened. Um, because if we can start with sexual education in school um, and we can start working with perpetrators before they go ahead and actually, um, you know, perpetrate and, and, and get involved with children, I believe we have a far better chance of, um, getting as close to nipping it in the bud as we can. I'm not of the belief that we as, as society and as humans, you know, will be able to nip it in the bud ever, unfortunately, completely, because of the prevalence of it. Um, you know, I think it's going to take millennia before we are, as a, as a human form, are uh, willing to you know, be able to say that we have done away with pedophilia completely. Um, because unfortunately, we as humans m- are deviant creatures. You know, we are good people, um, predominantly in, you know, in, in by base, by base. But people do bad things. Um, and therefore, I think that the education should begin before people do bad things. In the very same way that you teach a child not to steal and you teach a child and you teach a teenager not to commit murder or not to hurt other people or not to, you know, um, get involved in any form of crime or what we feel societally is bad, I believe that in the very same way, we should be openly teaching people about um, child sexual behavior early, early, early on so that we can work on prevention. And by demonizing pedophiles and by creating such an intensely and profoundly bad stigma around it, the very last thing that potential pedophiles, people who have not perpetrated, will feel safe to do is come out of the closet and declare that they have these urges. If we can, as a society start trying to work on safe places where people who have not perpetrated can come out and actually seek help before they go ahead and perpetrate, I think we will be closer to trying to find some sort of solution. Yes. Because at the moment, we are dealing with the consequences and we are not dealing with it you know, beforehand and prevention measures.
0: Yes. And because I believe in the spectrum, I do believe that there are some with these desires and sexual attraction to children who do possess enough empathy and insight to have shame, to not want to hurt a child, to have some intelligence and awareness about the potential effects on that child and what they can lose in their own lives, that there is a motivation in some pedophiles To do that work, but there's nowhere for them to go. I also believe that there are many, many pedophiles that are narcissists who will that's part of not taking responsibility for their behavior. A narcissist cannot it is always everyone's fault. So I think we don't do a very good job of talking about not just pedophilia, but narcissism within the pedophilia and then sociopathy within the pedophilia, which I do not believe are fixable.
2: No, but we know this. We know that mm-hmm. they're not flexible. And, and, and uh, you know, again, with regards to pedophilia, we also know that once a pedophile has perpetrated that, you know, it's a one-way street. And, and it's very well and fine. Say, yes, kill the pedophiles and lock them up and throw away the keys. Yes, I do believe that pedophiles and narcissists and sociopaths Psychopaths should all receive their days in court and they should absolutely, um, you know, um, receive punishment for their behavior. I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't, but I'm suggesting that we need a lot more education to, um, create safe places for these people to go before they start with that behavior. Because I do believe that through guidance, through support groups, through, um, you know, um, education, you can prevent people from walking down that road. You can give people tools to help them prevent that behavior and identify that behavior before they have to go ahead and behave in those ways.
0: Yes. And, it be- and I
2: think it's- those responsibilities begin with parents and they begin at school. But at the moment, we are too afraid to talk about the pedophile. You know, we're too afraid to talk about what can we do to help a pedophile. Because let me tell you, a pedophile is not only a pedophile once they start perpetrating. Pedophilia is the desire. Pedophilia is the wish to have sexual education, uh, sexual in, um, interaction with a child. And therefore, a pedophile is a pedophile even if they have not perpetrated. But we need to stop them before they perpetrate. And the only way we're going to do that is by creating safe places.
0: Yes, yes, you know, when I started the show and I said the word incest to someone, they cringed and they said, we're not ready for that word. And my response was, yeah, I wasn't ready for it either. That doesn't mean we get a free pass into not dealing with it. I looked up some numbers for the show and and we know that internationally, the numbers are one in three females and one in four boys are the estimates about sexual abuse. When I looked at flu numbers, 5 to 20% of Americans get the flu each year. And if we sit back and really think about that, I mean, we all, either we get the flu or we know a handful of people that get the flu. And those are lower numbers than sexual abuse numbers. You know, to completely turn on its head, you've got to also consider that one in three girls are sexually
2: abused before the age of 18 and one in four boys are sexually abused before the age of 18. Who's doing that abuse? That serves to reason that behind every one of those children is a pedophile. Mm -hmm. So what percentage of our population are pedophiles when you really stop to think about it? They're not just the creepy people that are hiding behind bushes and jumping out and flashing at us. They are people who are in our circles. They are people who we are living with day to day. They are people who appear as normal and as, as socially integrated as everybody else. Why? Because they are. Because they are the people next door and because they are the people in your own home and they are the people, unfortunately, under your own roof. And it's not I'm not suggesting that we have to develop some sort of sense of mistrust of, of society because that's also not fair, but we do need to actually open up our eyes and start facing the realities of what really is. And you have to consider and you have to remember that behind every single one of those victims is a
0: perpetrator. Yes. Yes. I really identified with your sister in your film. Now she is the eldest and I am the eldest. And I believe our abuse started at about the same ages. And it was very interesting to me to watch her process because she was angry and emotional and I think for a lot of people who watch your film they can't fathom that you could be so cool calm and collected to be able to sit with him and interview him now the way that I saw that was wow look at this survivor like her her maybe post traumatic stress type symptoms of being able to dissociate are serving her here to be able to do that because what I know with myself is even if I believed it, was, it would be the right thing to do and appropriate for me to sit down and interview, my nervous system from the way that I grew up will not, I don't, will not allow me to do that. I do not have the control over my nervous system to be in his vibes and to remain centered. And so I've given myself permission to never be in the room with him again. Now, I, I believe my, when the abuse starts, when the grooming starts... It has a very different effect on how we develop and and how we process. Now, we all do it differently, but it's fascinating to me the ways that we do it similarly. So when I watched you, I was really, really impressed that you had the capability to compartmentalize so strongly,
2: Well, there's various things that relate to that. Um, The first is, um, you know, what I failed to do in my film. And, you know, it's one of my learnings. And it's, you know, if I had to remake the film, whilst I certainly wouldn't change the messaging in any way, um, there are certain parts of the history that I would include, which I didn't include and, and I did for actually very specific reasons, um, because I didn't ever want to make the film about us. The film's not about us, it's about a subject matter. Um but what uh, part of the backstory, which is very important to actually understand and I should have contextualized um you know in a far greater detail in order to for the viewer seeing the movie Cold to truly understand and appreciate is my I was one of three children as, you know, as the film explains, um, Sophie is the eldest, is my sister. We have a brother in between, and then I am the youngest. Um, my parents, my biological parents, were divorced um, just after I was, uh, you know, between one and two years old. Um, my brother and my sister went to live with my father, and they actually moved to another continent, in fact, um, and so we weren't raised together. I was raised with my mum, and Dragon came into my life when I was two. When, my, when I was nine years old, sister was thirteen years old. My father sent my sister to live with us. So Sophie's experience grooming a happened over a very much more condensed period mm-hmm. of time. In fact, um, you know we've spoken about it at great length, and, and it actually happened for her over a number of weeks. The reason for that was multiple. Reasons. Um, the first reason being, from a risk perspective, um, you know, by the time Sophie arrived to live with us, I and my mother had been already been groomed for seven years. Um, I was two years old when it started, and Sophie arrived when I was nine. Sophie arrived when she was thirteen, so she was already at a stage in her life where she was going through puberty. She was. Already in a stage where her own natural sexual um, 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 awakenings were starting to happen. Um, and she was walking into an environment which was unsafe for him. And unsafe for him because at the age of teen she was a danger to revealing and uh, discovering this very meticulously groomed environment. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have the benefit, and I use the word benefit again in inverted commas because, you know, one questions whether it's a benefit or not, but she did not have the years of grooming that we had. Um, she was brought in with an initiation by fire. So her experience, A, was a lot more mature because she was at the age of 13 when it started, and also um as a result, it was a lot more short-lived. Um, you know, she, it was after 18 to 20 months that she came out with a secret. Um, and the reason for that is because for her, it was immediately wrong. Um, she was 13 when it started. So there was no normalization process, if I can put it that way, which happens when it starts when you're very young, uh, so she came in at a stage where she was already a teenager, um, and so dealing with that abuse for her has been profoundly different to how it was for me. He was not her father. He was not her father figure. She arrived in a home, which was already a confusing situation for her. She arrived into a situation where she was, in effect, raped. I'm not suggesting that what happened to me and rape, of course it was, but it was a very different form of rape mm-hmm. and she she you know so by the time she arrived, she already had her sense of self, she already had you know whether it was a good sense of self or not as you know is is still to be. The jury is out because, you know, of the um, the experiences that she had lived while she was living with my father. But that's a completely different scenario. You know, the point is that by the time she arrived into our household, she was arriving as a threat to dragon. Also, the experience from her perspective and the receipt of that experience was very different because she was, by the age of 13, she had already... um you know she was already starting her self discovery um both as just a human being and as a woman and as her place in this world um well as her her sense of sexual discovery um because that is the natural process, and that is the natural progression so further to that, I've had the opportunity and I've had the the, the privilege of having a lot of therapy. I have thought it out um intentionally, I have gone out, and I have actively therapy, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've spoken to therapists of various types, I've had various therapists over the years intentionally because you can't only ever have one viewpoint, Yes. Um, whereas my sister has not always had that privilege, mm-hmm. so that was the first part, the second part is we are different human beings and we process things differently, so my, I am a naturally inquisitive person in the context of I want to understand something to the greatest detail. For me to be able to let something go, I need to explore it in the minutiae. I need to get to the point where I understand every single little detail about it. Um, whereas my sister's way of of managing and coping with it is to not keep it in her present, is to put it into her past and to leave it in her past because that's where it belongs. Through my process of discovery and through my process of dealing with it, and I'm not suggesting that one process is better than the other, it's just different. And it therefore, it allows us to live different lives and it allows us to live different realities with that subject matter. But because of our different processes, I am able to contextualize my process, um, my experience that belongs in a certain time period, and even so, I am where I am today. The two are interconnectable, they are interchangeable, and they are also um um detachable. So when I was sitting there talking to Dragon, there were two things that happened. The first is, because I hadn't seen him since I was 12 years old when The Secret came out, in my mind's eye, he was still 30 years old. So it was a great big shock for me to discover and see him and realize that actually he was an, an old man in his 60s who was stooped over. So he was therefore not... The same person from my youth. Okay, that was number one. Number two, I was sitting there as a filmmaker, um, and as a filmmaker, I was sitting there thinking about camera angles. I was sitting there thinking about where the sound is coming from. I was sitting thinking about shadows. I was sitting. uh, I mean, there were so many things that were going through my mind. Um, I had to be disconnected because the priority in that moment was not about me. The priority in that moment was about getting the evidence on camera and on film so that in the case they would be able to use it. Not only that, but it was important for me to get him to feel comfortable enough To talk to me openly so that I would be able to put something together to share my experience so that when somebody else was out there looking for the information, as I was at the age of 12, 13, 14, they would be able to find something. And if the film can help one person, then the job is done.
0: I think it has. I think it definitely, definitely has. It's helped me just to see it and know that it's out there, to know the other therapists and coaches who are helping people through the long-term consequences of this and repairing our own sense of intimacy, our own sense of safety in the world, our own sense of who we can trust and how to, to trust and how to question and how to find our voice and stand up again. I think it's a magnificent piece of work um, i'm curious like now that the film is all kind of it's done it's out there what has that done for you lots of survivors ask me about closure and i think closure is such a it's a funny thing and a funny word and i, I don't I, I feel torn about whether or not we get that from people versus creating closure ourselves like what did what did doing the film and putting it out there do for for you
2: well, I don't think that there is such a thing as closure on an experience like that. Um, you know, when you consider closure, I mean, I'm a quite a visual person and immediately what comes to mind is a book and then you get to the end of the book and you close the hardcover at the end and that's it. You can put the book back on the shelf. You know, with an experience like that, and um, you know, it it is part of your DNA. and mm-hmm. becomes part of who you are. Um, So it's not about closure. It's about learning to live with yourself, a free human being from a day to day, and having the understanding that you have a choice. Um, and that choice is how you're going to live every day, how you're going to conduct your relationships with the perpetrator, with your enablers, and with future relationships. It is about understanding that you have a choice as to whether you're going to choose to be happy today or choose not to be happy today. And I do believe it is a choice. And I do, that's how I personally live my life. You know, I do have bad days. Of course I do. I have a lot of bad days. Um, so in fact, I probably have... A, more bad days than I care to admit to. Um, but the thing is, is that I, I allow myself to have bad days. It's not because those days just overcome me, you know, take over and I lose control. Because ultimately, I don't, be- I do believe that as adults, we are in control and that's one of the things that make us human beings. Um, and so I, it's more a case of I allow myself the space to mourn or to be upset or to be sad or to have a bad day. Mm -hmm. And in terms of that choice, it also comes down to, you know, choosing how you're going to compartmentalize your experience. Is that experience going to define me? Am I going to give the power over every single day of my life? No, I'm not. You know, I get to choose how today is going to be. I get to choose to what extent that is going to influence my decisions of today. Um, And I get to look at each new relationship that I have with a human being and go, am I going to be distrustful or am I actually going to give this person the benefit of the doubt? Because my experience happened with Dragon. My experience did not happen with every single human being out there. And therefore, my perpetrator was Dragon. And I keep that context and I keep that box where it belongs. Yes, it is part of my past, but it is also just a part of my present. But I get to choose how I'm going to allow that to be part of my present.
0: Yeah, I think our power lies in how we choose. Absolutely. So it's not about closure.
2: It's about learning how to live with that which is and the reality of that which is. It's more about the end also than closure. You know,
0: it's not about letting it go. It's about learning to live with it. Thank you so much for putting yourself out there in this way and putting this story out there for the other girls that he abused and assaulted and for everyone else that's listening to this show and who's going to see your documentary.
2: Thank you, Nikki, and I really appreciate you having me on your show, and good luck with the with the program and um, with the messaging and with your advocacy. Um, and thank you for the work that you do because we need a lot more people out there doing what you do um, for us all to be able to get through these days, you know?
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Lucy. If I come to the UK, I would love to meet and have a cup of tea. Oh,
2: absolutely. What are you talking about? We'll have a glass of wine. Ah, <laughs> yes. Even better. Yes. Yes. One day. I have, okay. a, I have a sense that we will meet. Oh, I hope so. I really do. I really do. I hope so, It's been so lovely too. chatting with
0: you. It has been. Yeah, no, it's been great. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Let me just tell everyone one more time that this is Lucy Witts and her documentary is Dragon's Lair. We will link to it in the show description. Go check it out. It's a powerful, powerful piece of work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a happy day. Enjoy the rest of your work day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I want to recommend two books if this episode has resonated with you and they are powerful books by the same author Gavin De Becker. I've mentioned him before. There's a beautiful book called The Gift of Fear which really informs us about how to trust our intuition. I do a lot of intimacy repair, intuition growth and helping people figure out the difference in feeling between their intuition and their anxiety. I believe when we figure that out, our intuition becomes a strong force and a strong guide. And in terms of battling childhood sexual abuse, we need highly sensitive people to trust their intuitions and to be able to report and be an advocate for the children in our lives. The other book by Gavin De Becker is called Protecting the Gift, which will inform parents. Now, I am not a parent, and yet I have read this book. Why? I have an advocacy spirit. If there is a lost child in a store, they will find me nine times out of 10. They will drift towards the highly sensitive empaths in the world. So empaths out there, some of you who aren't even parents may want to read the book by Gavin DeBecker, Protecting the Gift. It's the gift of innocence, that needs protecting from those of us who have proactive protection and prevention in our hearts and in our minds and in our spirits. I want to thank Lucy Witz for making herself available to Emotional Badass and to our audience. Thank you for listening to the show all the way through to the end. Lucy is most certainly an emotional badass. I am an emotional badass. And all of you out there, facing what's difficult to face being the change for yourself and your world you are emotional badasses together we are where moxie meets mindful keep taking care of yourselves and i will see you next time here on emotional badass thank you light and love bye bye.
1: dot com.